Good morning. Welcome to Grace Bible Church. Uh, as uh, always, I'm, I'm always thankful to be here with you this Lord's Day. I'm always in, encouraged to spend time with the Lord's people. I'm reminded, I'm reminded and in these times I'm reminded of a story of, about Martin Lloyd-Jones during his calling as a pastor. It was a, it was a process that he went through. Uh, and, and being called. He was a doctor from London, and he, he was a man who was accustomed to being a part of high society. And one night, as he was exiting the theater, some simple Christian people were playing music on the streets. You see, they were the salt of the earth kind of folks. And, and in, his, in his heart of hearts, Martin Lloyd-Jones saw these people, and he knew that they were his people. He knew that they were his people. And that he needed to be with them. In fact, the Lord used that very moment to solidify His calling to the ministry. You see, there's something special about the Lord's people. Something special about them, right? It is the Spirit of God that we have dwelling within us. And because He dwells in us, we take the very presence of God everywhere we go. We take Him with us everywhere we go because He's dwelling in us. And you know that isn't to say that God isn't already present, but as Christians... We manifest His presence in an amazing and special way. The Apostle Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 2.15. He says, For we are the fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. You see, Paul understood that as he went around to various cities, he carried about with him the fragrance of Christ. And in 2 Corinthians 2.14, he thanked God who always leads us in a triumphal procession in Christ. And He manifests through us the, the aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. Beloved, <coughs> excuse me. if you're a Christian, if you are a Christian, you are carrying around the fragrance of Christ. In other words, His presence is palpable where His people are gathered. Even here today, His presence is, is palpable. His presence is apparent to others around us unless we work to hide it. Unless we work to hide it. Even then, I would argue His fragrance is so strong that trying to hide it is impossible. Yet even though it is impossible to hide the aroma of Christ, sadly, we can become ineffective in our witness. Truly, we can become useless as representatives of the King. This is the, ha- the harsh reality of it. Well, now, over the next two weeks, we are going to study Matthew 5, 13-16, and I want you to consider the following questions. Do people, when they're around you, do people suspect that you're a Christian even when you don't say anything? When people see, second question is, when you, people see your actions and your attitudes, do they see Christ's likeness or do they see something else? When they hear your speech, you know, when they hear you talk, when they hear you conversing, do they recognize Christ in you, or do they see the world? Do they hear the world? Do you make the world around you a better place by proclaiming and manifesting His goodness? And lastly, are you willing to preach the good news of Christ, Jesus, even when it's not popular? So with that, let me read the text and then we'll pray and get started. Starting in Matthew 5, verse 13. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to, join, coming to John to be baptized by Him. Sorry, that's uh, 
not 5.13. That would be 3.13. 5.13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how will it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out, to be trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on the hill, on a hill, cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Today we're going to focus on verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You this morning and praise You. Father, we thank You that You are good to us. Father, I pray that as a church that we would be the salt of the earth. And that we wouldn't be useless and that we wouldn't be trampled underfoot by men. But that You would use us in Your way for Your glory. In Christ's name, Amen. Well, if I ask you, how salty are you? How salty are you? What do you think when I ask that question? Well, in our modern thought, in our modern vernacular, to be salty can mean that you're annoyed or upset at something. I may get salty when you bring up my favorite football team after a particularly difficult loss. Don't do it. It happened yesterday. You might get salty if I make fun of your favorite Hawaiian shirt. On the other hand, being salty could also refer to using impolite language or even swear words. Just like salt itself, the term can be used in a variety of ways. You probably know that being called the salt of the earth has become to be synonymous with being a person of great worth or reliability. This reference has been derived from Jesus' words in our verse in Matthew 5.13. You are the salt of the earth. You probably also heard the phrase pouring salt in an open wound. We have all felt the burn of salt poured into an abrasion. I gargle with salt water when I get canker sores in my mouth, and I can promise you it hurts like crazy. So to pour salt in an open wound means to say or do something that makes who already, someone who already feels bad, feels bad about something feel even worse or more upset. This phrase comes from the ancient practice of rubbing salt into wounds to prevent infection. Amazingly, despite the pain it causes, salt is actually a natural antiseptic that kills bacteria and promotes healing. In fact, salt may be one of the most incredible substances in the world. A story told by D. James Kennedy in his book, Led by the Carpenter, illustrates the usefulness of salt. A man walked into a little grocery store and he asked, do you sell salt? Ha, said Pop, the proprietor. Do we sell salt? Just look. The man, or Pop showed the man, the customer, an entire wall of shelves stocked with nothing but salt. Morton salt, iodized salt, kosher salt, sea salt, rock salt, garlic salt. Every kind of salt imaginable. Wow, said the customer. Well, you think that's something, asked Pop. That's nothing. Come look. And Pop led the customer to a back room filled with shelves and bins and cartons and barrels and boxes of salt. Do we sell salt? He said. Unbelievable, said the customer. You think that's something, said Pop. I'll show you salt. 
and Pop led the customer down steps into a huge basement, five times as large as the back room, and it was filled floor to ceiling with every imaginable form of salt, even 10-pound salt licks for cows. Well, you see, church, salt, as you can tell from that story, may be the most critical and useful substance in the world. Yet, get this, it may just be one of the most ordinary substances in the world. You see, we use salt in a variety of ways. In an article by Andrew Wilson, he notes that while we use salt, we, we use salt uh, to, we actually use salt to make leather, to make pottery, to make soap, to make detergents to make rubber, to make clothes, to make paper, to make cleaning products, to make glass, to make plastics, to make pharmaceuticals. Even though we use it in those ways, it sits largely unnoticed on hundreds of millions of cafe and restaurant tables around the world. You get the picture. Salt is absolutely ordinary. We use it for all these things, yet it's ordinary. We know, though, that salt is absolutely essential for our health, even though even though it's gotten a bad rap because it causes high blood pressure. You see, salt is an absolute wonder. Yet salt is composed of actually two poisonous substances, sodium and chlorine. If taken individually, those substances will absolutely kill you. Yet we know, as I've said, salt is necessary for sustaining life. Did you know that we actually use salt to melt ice on the roads? Now, if you're in Florida, you may not know that, but that is actually true. It has gotten a bad rap, but it's actually a wonder. Yet salt, sorry. Well, this uh, program is going to get a bad rap. It's absolutely useful until it's not. There it is. Well, I can't overstate the usefulness of salt. Yet it's so ordinary that there are untold tons of it in the oceans covering most of the Earth's surface. But salt that doesn't get used is, well, useless, right? Just listen to the rest of D. James Kennedy's story. The customer saw this salt, and he said, it's incredible. You really do sell salt. The pop said, that's just the problem. <coughs> we never sell salt. But that salt salesman, oh boy, does he know how to sell salt. But what's the moral of the story? The moral of the story is salt that stays on the shelf doesn't do any good at all, does it? So as we dive back into the Sermon on the Mount, let me ask you again, how salty are you? How salty are you? And I'm not asking about your attitude after a gator loss. I'm asking, as the king's representative, are you useful to him? In other words, are you the salt of the earth? Or are you gathering dust on the shelf concerned only with your own life and its comforts? Now, as I've told you, we're returning to our study in Matthew. We've called it the King and His Glory. Today, we're returning to Matthew chapter 5 and the Sermon on the Mount, the King's Manifesto. We've made it through the Beatitudes, which is the introduction to His sermon, and now we find ourselves in Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16. In this text, in Matthew 5, 13 through 16, King Jesus gives His representatives on earth, you and I, 
present and future and past, two critical expectations. As his disciples, your king expects you to be a preserving agent in the world, and he also expects you to have an illuminating presence to the world. Now let's look at today the king's first expectation of his representatives. King Jesus expects you to be a preserving agent in the world. Now as we start looking at this first expectation, I want to give you a, a little quick, a quick review of our Matthew study up until now. In doing so, I want to show you a pattern. Now you may recall that Matthew wrote his gospel to show that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the true king of Israel. He started in Matthew chapter 1 by proving that Jesus was the long-awaited descendant of Abraham and David. Now, you may recall from their stories, from Abraham and from David, that they are salt-of-the-earth kind of folks. You see, they were both amazing people, but there's nothing special to differentiate them. Uh, Abraham was called from his country. He had nothing uh, special about him that would make God call him. And David was the same way. David was tending sheep when, when he was made the king. Now, if you look at Matthew, according to Matthew 1.1, Jesus is the only person who descended from Abraham with a right to David's throne. His physical bloodline proved it. Now, as you study his bloodline, as you study his genealogy, that is, in Matthew chapter 1, I want you to see that you will find several of what we might call salt-of-the-earth kind of people. Just think of people like Ruth and even Rahab. You see, neither were special in the world's eyes, yet we find them in the lineage of the king. You see, God uses the, the, the salt of the earth kind of people in order to bring forth his will and, his, uh, and in his case, his son. Now, in Matthew 1.18, we also see that Jesus' conception was by the Holy Spirit and of a virgin, he was born of the virgin birth, which gave a, a further miraculous verification that Jesus is the king. But you may also remember from that verse, that, or from, from those verses, that Joseph and Mary were Jesus' earthly parents. Despite being born as the king, as the king of the world, the father entrusted his son to these incredibly, two incredibly humble servants in Joseph and Mary. You see, Joseph and Mary were not special in the world's eyes. Yet, yet, they were willing to give their lives to protect Jesus. Again, you might say, they were salt-of-the-earth kind of people. In Matthew chapter 2, you may recall that there's a group of kingmakers that came from the east, the, the Magi, who came to find Jesus to crown Him as king. They traveled thousands of miles to worship Him, yet His own people, the Jewish religious leaders, wouldn't even go a few miles down the road to investigate the arrival of the Messiah. You see, they were too busy with their comfortable lives cozying up to an evil king, Herod, and the Romans. You see, the, the, the religious leaders, they were, not, they were not the salt of the earth kind of folks. King Herod saw that Jesus was a major threat to his sovereignty, so he conjured up a plan to kill him while he was still a child. Yet, through all the tre treachery, <coughs> through all the treachery, God the Father sovereignly protected his son through his childhood and into his early adulthood. He slowly grew and became strong in spirit. And according to Luke, in Luke's gospel, he lived. In Luke 1.80, he lived in the desolate regions until the day of his public appearance to, to, to Israel. 
Guess what? You might even say that Jesus himself was a salt of the earth kind of guy. In Matthew chapter 3, Matthew describes the ministry of John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Messiah. He came preaching repentance and nearness to, of the, the nearness of the kingdom of heaven. He preached in the wilderness of Judea, completely away from the established Jewish religious leadership in Jerusalem. Just like the Magi who came from the outside to worship the Messiah, John set up his ministry in judgment of the religious establishment. Even his attire of camel's hair and his food of locust and wild honey testified against this, the, the, the establishment. You might even say, what am I going to say? John the Baptist is the salt of the earth kind of guy, right? You start seeing a pattern? You start seeing a pattern? In Matthew 3, verse 4, we find, I'm sorry, in, in, in Matthew 3, we also find that he baptized Jesus in the desolate Jordan River. The John the Baptist, uh, John, John's baptism was the king's coronation, uh, the inauguration of his earthly ministry. That would be Jesus' earthly ministry. Uh, ministry. Uh, the Messiah was not coronated in the temple in Jerusalem. Do you see the picture? But in the wilderness areas of the Jordan River. His baptism also clearly showed the Trinitarian nature of Jesus' ba- ministry. After being baptized, the Spirit of God descended upon him, and the Father proclaimed, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. In Matthew chapter 4. Matthew recorded Jesus' testing in the wilderness by the devil. Of course, our our Lord easily defeated Satan who used his oldest trick of of twisting God's word for his own evil purposes. He's still doing that today, by the way. Unlike unlike Adam and Eve who failed in the perfect garden, Jesus trusted the Father's plan and His word in the harsh wilderness. Therefore, the, the devil left him until another opportune time. It was at that point that Jesus began to establish His Earthly ministry beginning in Galilee. This was a region north of the Sea of Galilee, again away from Jerusalem, not in Jerusalem, not in the center of the religious establishment. It was away from there. It was there that Jesus began to uh, began his ministry by preaching the message that, that John the Baptist had preached: "Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand." It, it, it's a handover from Jesus or from John the Baptist to Jesus, and and we also see in Matthew chapter four that he began. That would be Jesus began to call his disciples to follow him. Here's what's interesting. They were common men from Galilee, mostly fishermen. They were salt of the earth kind of people, salt of the earth kind of men. You see, Jesus' choice of men and location for ministry was completely unlike the religious leaders from Jerusalem. And again, I hope you are seeing a pattern. Our Lord seems to favor the salt of the earth kind of folks and backwater kind of places. But what exactly does Jesus mean by describing his disciples as the salt of the earth? Well, I think we need to start by looking at the context of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. We need to be able to understand and describe Jesus' disciples. You may recall in Matthew 5, 1, Jesus saw the crowds, so He ascended, to the, ascended the mountain to teach His disciples. 
It stands to reason that he was directly addressing his disciples. He was directly uh, teaching them. He intended his words for them as instruction as an, and as a blessing to them. Yet we, we see the picture that the crowds were hearing his, his teaching. As such, uh, we can see that he was indirectly addressing them. He, he was intending to teach his disciples, but he also intended to challenge the crowd in their thinking. And in many cases, he intended his words as a judgment for them. But he definitely intended his words as a judgment to the religious establishment. In Matthew 5, 3-11, which we just finished over the last few weeks, he gave the Beatitudes which describe the progression of the Christian life from salvation and sanctification to suffering for the sake of the King. And we took several weeks to understand Jesus' words, but they can be boiled down uh, to one thing. Matthew 5, 3-11 are a description of the true follower of Christ. And I would argue that every true Christian has taken these general steps uh, in some form or some fashion. And in Matthew 5.12, Matthew 5.12, He tells His disciples to rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. What is His reward? What is the reward? What is He talking about? He's talking about persecution that comes as being a Christian. You see, as Christians, uh, beloved, we will live a completely different life than the world around us. We may even be called to suffer greatly for our faith, but we can rejoice and be glad. The Lord will not forget us or forsake us. He will reward us in heaven. But here's the question. Why will we be persecuted? Why, why will we suffer this persecution? Well, I believe the answer lies in the next verses, starting with Jesus' proclamation in Matthew 5.13. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. Now, to better understand his words, we need to explore some of the general uses or functions of salt. What are the functions of salt? Well, first, as you know, salt gives flavor. This may be the most familiar use to us as salt. And here, here in the United States, we love our salt. We love it. We put it on everything. I'll never forget going to a cookout at a friend of my son's at, at, this, at his friend's house. His parents had brought in a cook uh, especially to roast a pig. It was incredible. Uh, it was the best I've ever had. I asked the cook his secret for making this incredible pork. You know what he said? I use a lot of salt. You see, salt works by enhancing flavor perception. It, it interacts with our taste receptors responsible for detecting sweet and savory flavors. It also acts as a flavor balancer. It helps harmonize and balance the taste of any given dish. It can counteract bitterness and enhance the perception of sweetness. Salt also stimulates our saliva glands. It, it does this to help with digestion, but it, it also moistens our mouth and improves the texture perception, enhances the, the flavor release. Overall, salt, when we add it to our food, adds depth and, and complexity to our food. Without salt, even the highest quality food would be, as you know, bland. You see, no doubt... This is a powerful illustration. You see, Jesus does intend for us as His people to add flavor to the world around us. Just think of men like Noah, men like Moses, the prophets, or even, we talked about him earlier, John the Baptist. <clears throat> These men, had, they, they brought flavor to the world around them. 
It's interesting to me that the lost world doesn't have the capacity to understand the Creator. Therefore, they do not have the ability to fully appreciate His creation. They worship His creation. They worship the creature. But they don't have the ability to fully appreciate it because they don't understand its Creator. You see, Christians who know the one true God enhance the appreciation of all that God has made because they enhance the appreciation of God Himself. For example, without a Christian influence, art descends to immoral, grotesque, and even, even twisted depiction of base things. There's nothing, there's nothing good about it. You know, there's nothing funnier than witty comedy based on everyday occurrences of, of things around us. But without a Christian influence, comedy morphs into nothing more than coarse language used to describe sexual deviancy. And that's it. Ultimately, these things become bland to the taste because there's no variety in them. And Christians add flavor by drawing out blessings in the world around us. They, the Christians provide contrast to a, to a dark world by being distinct from the world. As the Apostle Paul encouraged the Colossian church, let your words always be with grace, seasoned with salt. You see, even in the midst of, of great conflict, we are to flavor our words with kindness and gentleness and sensitivity and thought, thoughtfulness and truthfulness. Again, we are to be distinct from the world. But here's the question. Is this what Jesus intended here? The problem with this analogy is that the world sees Christians as bland, right? Even though we can see ourselves and we can understand ourselves and see that we bring flavor to the world, the world doesn't see it that way. We're the party poopers. The world finds us unpalatable. We do not and cannot give flavor to life. We take flavor out of life, right? That's what the world believes. Even so, even so, I do believe this illustration, this particular, uh, this particular idea has some validity. I think that Jesus does expect us to add flavor to the world. And I think that we do add flavor to the world. Truly, we cannot, we cannot expect a world dominated, dominated by the evil one to recognize true goodness, right? We can't expect that. Those who are ruled by the flesh cannot recognize the beauty of the Spirit of God. Because they're walking according to this world, right? So there is some validity to it. I think we are to bring flavor to the world. But this brings us to the next use of, of salt. Salt can be used as an antiseptic. But what we have to recognize is an antiseptic, it burns, right? As you know, salt burns or stings when it's placed into, into an open wound. Jesus could have had that function in mind when he used salt as an illustration. And in, this sense, in, in this sense, this is a, the direct opposite of bringing flavor to the world. As Christians who are walking in the light of Christ... Our presence stings the unbeliever. It stings it who is intent on carrying out the desires of their flesh. In, in, the, in the words of John MacArthur, he says, Christians are to sting the world to prick its conscience, make it uncomfortable uh, in the presence of God's holy gospel, end quote. As, as believers, our presence is not generally welcome when we're walking as Christ walked, right? I mean, that's the connection to persecution, this is because we represent the things that they don't like. Any church that is functioning according to the Word of God will not be attractive to unbelievers. I mean, if an unbeliever walks in here, 
uh, unless they're being called by God, this will not be attractive. To sit up here and sing a few songs, to have a guy uh, preach the Word, it, maybe not so good, but if he preaches the Word, that's not interesting unless they're being called by God. Worldly people will not endure sound teaching, beloved. They want their ears to be tickled and will find teachers who will tell them what they want to hear. And if they're not hearing what they want to hear, they're going to go somewhere else to do it. The church must confront people in their lostness. They must tell them that they're in danger of God's wrath being poured out on them. And they must not back down even though those things are not popular. Those things are not palatable, palatable that is, to the world. But they do purify. That's what we have to see. They sting they hurt, but they do purify. And we must stand on the Word of God. And when we do, we will be like salt in an open wound to the unbeliever. We have to recognize that. Just listen to Oswald Chambers. He says this, Think of the action of salt on a wound. If you get salt in a wound, it hurts. And when God's children are amongst those who are raw toward God, their presence hurts. The man who is wrong with God is like an open wound, and when salt gets in, it causes an annoyance and distress, and he is spiteful and bitter. The disciples of Jesus preserve society from corruption. The salt causes excessive irritation, which spells persecution for the saint. You see the connection that we, we are purifying, which burns, which hurts the unbeliever, therefore it spells or it, it spurs persecution. But here's the question. <clears throat> I've asked it before. Is this what Jesus intended here? I definitely think Jesus had this in mind when he says that we're to be the salt of the earth. I don't, but I don't think that we need to go out of our way to be an irritant to unbelievers. You see, our very presence when we're acting as Christians will always be an annoyance to those walking in the flesh. Always. This brings us to the next possibility. Salt as you know, causes thirst. It is well known that salt causes thirst because it increases the body's need for fresh water. You see, if, if you drink salt water, you will only become more thirsty. It's crazy to think about that because you're actually drinking water. You're actually drinking water that makes you more thirsty, which is a weird. But it's not the water that's causing you thirsty. It's the salt that's causing you to be thirsty. You see, our kidneys have to remove that excess salt, but they can only produce enough urine, or they can only produce urine that is less salty than, than our blood. So seawater itself contains three times the amount of salt that is normally present in our blood. Put simply, this means that for every cup of salt water you drink, you need to drink more fresh water in order for your kidneys to flush out the salt out of your system. The body then if you drink salt water and you don't get enough fresh water, the body will try to compensate by taking water from your cells, which ultimately leads to kidney failure and death. But here's what's amazing. See, salt, salt is absolutely incredible. The more you study it, you go, wow, this is incredible. But in, in the right amounts, salt causes us to be thirsty and to drink more fresh water, which is good. That's the reason why athletes have been given, in the past, been given salt tablets. They, they see, the salt tablets help maintain the right levels of sodium, but they also increase the body's craving for water. So they drink more water, right? Applied to Christians, God wants, to, God wants us to live in such a way that our testimony causes thirst 
a thirst for righteousness, right? They wants, he wants people to see us and be in and thirst for what we have. You see, there's no doubt that God uses us to draw others to Himself. You see, we are part of the means He uses to cause His elect to thirst for righteousness. They see us, they see our life, and we give an account for the hope that is in us. And if, they, if God has called them, uh, they come to know Him. There's a story of a young Chinese Christian girl at a meeting discussing this very text. And one suggestion after another, as, as we're doing, was made as to the meaning of salt in this verse. One said salt imparts desirable flavor. And others said salt preserves decay. Uh, then this, this Chinese girl spoke out of an experience none of the others had had. She said this, salt creates thirst. And she said that, and there was a sudden hush in the room because everybody was thinking, have I ever made anyone thirsty for the Lord Jesus? But again, I I ask you, is this what Jesus intended? Did he intend that as his illustration? Well, I think it's possible that that's what Jesus had in mind when he spoke these words. And I hope that you're asking yourself, just like uh, everybody in that room, I hope you're asking yourself, are, are others thirsty for Jesus because of my witness? After all, He gives us, He has promised to give us living water when we ask. That's John 4.10. Those who drink the living water of Christ will never thirst, ever. But the water He gives will come in you, up in you, become in you a well of water springing up to eternal life. That's, again, His promise in John chapter 4. That you'll never thirst if you have this living water. So salt, then we've seen, gives flavor. Salt burns as an antiseptic. And salt causes thirst. So which is it? Well, let me give you another one. Salt also destroys. And God uses the, the metaphor of salt in judgment. In studying the subject of salt in Scripture... You can't miss the references to salt being used in destruction. In Genesis 19.26, God turns Lot's wife into a pillar of salt when she turns back to look at the city of Sodom. And Jesus uses that tragic story as an illustration of His second coming. He says, remember Lot's wife, and at His second coming there will be judgment. In Deuteronomy 29.23, Moses warned Israel that if they break Yahweh's covenant, all its land will be brimstone and salt, a burning waste, unsown and nothing sprouting, and no grass growing in it. It will be like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, which which Yahweh overthrew in His anger and His wrath. That's Deuteronomy 29.23. In Judges 9.45, Abimelech, Gideon's son, captured Shechem and, and killed the people and tore down the city and sowed it with salt. Again, you see that salt being uh, uh, there with destruction or synonymous with destruction. In Psalm 107, verse 34, uh, the psalmist speaks of a fruitful land, God turning a fruitful land into a salt waste because of the evil of those who inhabited it. But we can again ask the question, Is that what Jesus intended here? Well, you know, there is a sense that believers are a sign of God's coming judgment of the world and all the rebellious people in the world. You see, we preach the gospel 
which is the good news that Christ came to save sinners from the, from the wrath of God to come. And, and the world doesn't like when we preach judgment, right? I mean, some churches don't even preach it. Some churches don't even tell you that, that you're going to hell if you don't turn from your sins. They won't tell you that. They won't tell you that God judges because people don't like it. Because the world doesn't like it. And as such, when we do preach that God's wrath is coming upon them, we represent that wrath, do we not? Certainly can't miss that connection. Speaking of the Old Testament, let me give you another possibility. We should note that salt was used as sacrifices in the Old Testament. In Leviticus 2.13, Moses told the Israelites that, that every... Uh, you shall, at every grain offering of yours, moreover, you shall season with salt, so that the salt of, your, of the covenant of your God shall not be lacking from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall bring salt near. Don't you love how earthly, how, I mean, in a, in a good way that this is? Like you're bringing your, your sacrifice, it's this covenant to God, and it has, it's supposed to have salt. You see, salt was to be included with all the offerings. It seemed, that, it seemed that salt kept the offering from going bad, from spoiling. Therefore, the salt may have even represented God's covenant with them in, in that it would never spoil and, and that they dare not give God something that was in danger of spoilage. I think there's even a possible connection here to Paul's words in Romans 12, 1 and 2 to present your bodies as a sacrifice, living holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Clearly, there's a connection back to the sacrifices. But just as the sacrifice was to be preserved by salt from spoilage, we need to take care to offer our bodies as a sacrifice, which is living and holy and pleasing to God. This means we are to be sanctified, renewed, purified even for, for service to God. amazing how many different ways we can look at the statement, right? But which one best fits? Well, I believe they all have some validity. I, I've said that. But perhaps the greatest one hasn't been mentioned. You see, the greatest function of salt is that salt preserves. Now, I don't think it would be pushing this too far to say that Jesus had in mind all of these functions that we've seen, that we've mentioned. But I think that we need to recognize that each of these functions contribute to the preserving nature of the Christian in this world. We have to recognize that Christians are commanded to be a preserving influence in a rotten world. As such, as Christians, we retard the moral and spiritual de decay in a world prone to decay. In the, in the words of Martin Lloyd-Jones, he says, ye are the salt of the earth. What does that imply? It clearly implies rottenness in the earth. It implies a tendency to pollution and to becoming foul and offensive. This is what the Bible has to say about this world. It is fallen, sinful, and bad. It is, its tendency is to evil and to wars. It is like meat which has the tendency to putrefy and to become polluted, end quote. Beloved, the church as salt retards the moral decay of this world. And as bad as this world seems to us, it would be much 
much, much worse if the, if the church did not exist. Can you imagine how disgusting the world was before the flood? Just imagine how disgusting it would have been. There were only Noah and his family. There was no one else found righteous. Moses tells us that Yahweh saw that the evil of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the heart of, of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And you cannot imagine how disgusting this world was. The pre-flood world had degraded to a point of no return that God had to wipe out the entire world except for Noah and his family. We can't even imagine. In Romans 1, the Apostle Paul told the church at Rome that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. According to Paul, God has made Himself known through what He has made through His creation, yet they did not acknowledge Him as God. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity. That's Romans 1, 24. He gives sinful man over to impurity. He removes His hand of blessing. He removes His restraint of sin. He takes away the godly influence from a people and He judges them. I believe that's what we're beginning to see in our world today. In this, in this world, this nation we call America, this nation we call the United States, the God's influence is being taken away. Uh, we, we're seeing that and He's giving them over to their sin. And I believe there's coming a day in the future where history will repeat itself and God will give mankind over to their sin. Just like before the flood, He's going to remove all godly influence and this world will slide into an abyss of immorality. And when that happens, Satan and his band of demons will have their way. They will go rogue for a brief period. But I believe at that point Jesus will return to set up His kingdom. It will be as bad as it gets, but the Lord Jesus will come and He will deliver the world by His power. I believe these two periods, the period before the flood and the period to come, will be similar in that sin and wickedness will overwhelm this world without restraint. In the meantime, before that happens, while you and I are still here, Jesus calls us to be salt, preserving our current world. In the words of John MacArthur, as God's children and as temples of His Holy Spirit, Christians represent God's presence in the earth. We are the salt that prevents the entire earth from degenerating even faster than it is. End quote. And Paul said it's proceeding from bad to worse. Or it will proceed from bad to worse. Well, we're going to pick up there next week. But I'm going to conclude by saying that Jesus expects you and I to be salty. To be salty. And I don't mean that in the way that the world would mean it today. I mean that as His representative, He expects you to give flavor to a bland world. It almost goes without saying that, that God is more beautiful, more amazing, more incredible, more good, more powerful. He is greater than any created thing. Our words fall well short of describing Him. And He desires for you and for, I, for me, He desires for us to live a life that points to Him. And that gives flavor in this bland world. 
I don't want to see any of you guys going around in camel skin, though. Joke. Nobody got it. (laughs) He also expects us to be a purifying and cleansing agent in the world. You see, your life should have a godly impact on the people around you. They may not like what you represent, but they should respond to it. Your family should be more godly because of you. Let me ask you that. Is your family more godly because of you? If not, why not? Your workplace should be a more moral place because of you. If not, why not? Your school should be a better school because of your godly influence. If not, why not? They may hate you for it, but your presence should make a godly impact. And more than anything, your presence should have a preserving effect on the world around you. This is true for the individual Christian as well as the church as a whole. You can look at the saints on the pages of Scripture and you see them act in this very way. They're a preserving effect on the people. They have a preserving effect on the people around them. You should have the same preserving effect. Things shouldn't be going morally south as quickly because you're around. And certainly because the church is around. We should be speaking to to the things in this world and we should be holding them back from what they want to do. Well, here in just a moment, we're going to turn our attention to the Lord's Supper. And I want you to take some time to ready your heart. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, we invite you to partake with us. But I want you to remind you that if you're a believer, I want to remind you that This is a solemn time of remembrance. We are remembering the Lord's death on the cross. We are remembering His promise to to us. His promises to us that He will return and that one day soon we will partake in a feast with Him. We will partake together in the marriage supper of the Lamb. You're here today. Joining us today and you don't know Him. If you haven't turned to Him in saving faith, right now we beg you, here today we beg you to believe in the Lord Jesus. He died for the sins of of mankind. He went to the cross. He took the wrath of the Father, of, of the wrath of the Father upon Himself. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. He, he made Him to be sin. He, he didn't become sin. He treated Him as if He were sin. And He poured His wrath on Him. Uh, the Lord Jesus willingly laid down His life for His people. He died on that cross and He was placed in the grave. Yet we believe the grave could not hold Him. The grave couldn't hold Him. He rose victorious. He rose victorious on the third day. And He has ascended. He has ascended to the Father. He has defeated sin and death. And if you're here today, we beg you to believe. We beg you to turn from your sin. Don't let another moment pass. You could be gone today. Literally, 
People are dropping all over the world. They're dropping dead everywhere. And I'm not just making that up. It could happen to you at this very moment. Don't let it happen if you don't know Him. Turn to Him today. 